The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today, and happy September, almost happy Labor Day. And as promised, this uh, show and this guest came about because of my summer reading. And I'm almost finished with uh, the books I read this summer related to museums. Uh, And all of the guests that I've had on in the last uh, uh, five or six weeks, uh, authors, have been just fabulous, and they're all really important books. And I don't mean to uh, d- uh, uh, dis- um, disadvantage any of my other guests, but I've got to say, if you have one book that you didn't read this summer and you need to read now, you need to read this one. Uh, Mounting Frustration, the Art Museum in the Age of Black Power. Uh, it's published by uh, Duke University. It's published this year in 2016 uh, by Susan Cahan, my guest today. And I just, it is an amazingly insightful and thoughtful book for our times. And uh, I know you're really going to enjoy uh, the conversation that Susan and I have uh, today. So, Susan, thank you so much for being on the program. Oh, thank you for having me, Carol. I'm I'm delighted. Uh, As I ask all of my guests, Susan, uh, if you would please describe your career history and particularly those experiences that have most impacted your feelings about museums. Well, um... My uh, involvement with museums actually began when I was very young. Uh, When I was in high school, I um, had the opportunity to do an apprenticeship at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, This was in 1978. And I was placed in uh, the community programs department, which had been set up at that time in order to expand the Metropolitan Museum's uh, relationships and work with communities that were not part of, had not previously been part of the museum's core audience. So these would be what at that time were called underserved communities, um, uh, working class, poor communities, communities of color uh, throughout the five boroughs of New York. And um, during my apprenticeship, the museum 
uh, had uh, appointed a new director, um, Philippe de Montebello, whose name may be familiar to some because he remained the director for many decades, um, stepping down only a few years ago. And one of the first things that Philippe de Montebello did is he eliminated uh, the community programs department. Um, the department had been founded in 1971, and, uh, and this was 1978. And I was left kind of afloat. Um, I sort of was taken under the wing of a staff member, and I was given some other duties to, to perform. But I always wondered what kind of mindset led to, and social changes really led to, the demise of, of that department that I was a member of. Um, and so uh, that was my first museum experience. Based on that experience when I was 17, I made a decision at that point that I wanted to work in museums, that that was what I wanted to devote my life to. Uh, so I got a degree in art history, and I was very lucky that um, right after I graduated from college, I was hired at the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, this was in the early 1980s, and one of the exhibitions that I was in, uh, aware of and, and involved with as an educator at MoMA was the highly controversial exhibition called Primitivism in 20th Century Art. Um, this was an exhibition that compared modern art with art from third world countries, uh, so-called primitive art, um, to show the influence of primitive art on, on Western art and also uh, certain um, inexplicable affinities or shared characteristics. Um, it was a very controversial show because many art critics and men, many members of the audience felt that the, uh, the so-called primitive art was being put in a subservient role to the Western art and that it was simply being used as a sort of backdrop or prop to help people understand styles of modern art and not really being granted um, enough interpretation, enough context in its own right. Um, so that, that was another formative experience of mine based on my professional experience. You know, and then in the 1980s and the 1990s, I moved on to work at the New Museum of Contemporary Art, which had a very um, strong desire to exhibit the work of a very broad constituency of artists and to really try to be equitable in its exhibition program. And, and, and it's, uh, uh, all of its activities. And it was during that time that I uh, came in contact with a number of scholars and artists and art historians who had been involved with activism in the 1960s and 70s to try to integrate museums. And this was a revelation to me. Um, I had gotten an undergraduate degree in art history. I was in a PhD program uh, in art history. And despite my formal education and my, at that point, you know, uh, 15 years, well, maybe not 15 at that point, 10 years of, of professional experience in the field, um, the activism of the 60s and 70s was something that I had never heard of before. So all of these things contributed to a, a profound level of curiosity on my part and a desire to really understand my field in a fuller way. And so, you know, that, that's a little bit about my career history and, and the experiences that uh, impacted my desire to explore museums from a scholarly point of view. And then there's just one other point, one other sort of coordinate in all of this that I think is really essential. Um, in 1996, I was invited by 
two art collectors uh, named Eileen and Peter Norton to move from New York, where I had been working, to Los Angeles, uh, Santa Monica, to be exact, to be the curator for their collection of art and to be the arts program director for their philanthropic foundation that, that gave quite a lot of money in support of contemporary art. Now, Peter and Eileen Norton, and some people may recognize the name Peter Norton from things like Norton Utilities and Norton Unrace. Um, Peter made his fortune uh, in the software industry and then retired uh, in the late 80s and dedicated his life, began dedicating his life to the collection of art. Um, He and his wife Eileen were two of the most adventuresome and ambitious collectors of African-American art. Uh, As well, they were board members of major museums. They were major donors. And this enabled me to see museums from another perspective, um, from the perspective of of the the donor and of the board member. And all of this, my early experiences and my later experiences, combined to help me understand both the synergies and the conflicts uh, inside museums and also between museums and the various constituents that they are designed to serve. That's, oh, thank you. That, that is a wonderful context for our conversation uh, today. And, bef- um, you know, the obvious next question is, is what motivated you to then actually take on the mantle of writing this book. But I, before I do that, uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, just as a follow-up to your question or, or to your, your statement about uh, your experiences working with um, uh, the Nortons, is, uh, as you and I were talking uh, prior to uh, coming on the show today, I was working in Newark at about the time you were working in uh, in New York, and I remember uh, the controversies um, over some of these shows and some of the discussions, but I was pretty naive when it came to understanding the business of art and the role that museums play in that business. Uh, I was a natural history curator and I sort of kept my blinders on in, in the science department. So I'm, I'm, could you just, uh, for, the, for my sake as well as the, the uh, sake of, of uh, perhaps some of our, our listeners, could you sort of explain that art business uh, particularly as you sort of, you know, as you were saying, the the perspective of museums, galleries, critics, uh, collectors, uh, and particularly why, you know, the you know, sort of the the role that museums covertly and overtly play in that business. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the art world is um, made up, as you said, of many different uh, voices and many different venues. Um, including those that you name, museums, galleries, uh, art magazines, um, you know, even art history programs and, and, and um, uh, art publishers. Um, and all of this combines to create uh, very often consensus uh, about what art is considered important or significant. And the more pervasive the consensus um, the more, uh, the, the higher, typically, the higher the monetary value um, of an artist's work. Um, and uh, art is sold in many different ways. It's sold privately one-on-one. It's sold through galleries and dealers. And it's sold increasingly uh, 
publicly uh, at auction. And, and the public auction has become an incredible, incredibly interesting uh, tool for tracking uh, the prices uh, of an artist's work. And, and I guess uh, with, with that back, backdrop, and, and I have to tell you that when I worked for Peter and Eileen North, one of the things that I did is that I was researching, uh, proposing acquisitions for the collection and negotiating purchases, and I became quite fascinated with the dynamics of the art market. Um, but against that backdrop and getting back to the subject of museums and the importance of museums for different types of artists, different constituencies of artists, um, I'd like to lay out a kind of simple structure. Um, very simply put, and this is an extreme simplification, the art world has two sectors. Uh, the for-profit sector, which would include um, galleries and auction houses and, and what we typically refer to as the art market, and the not-for-profit sector, which includes museums. Now, because art galleries are perceived to have a profit motive, just like any other business in our society, you know, one of their goals is to, to make money, um, they are seen as not necessarily being objective assessors of what is meaningful or what is truly of quality in artwork. Um, now, those of us who are part of the art world, we know that most dealers and gallerists, you know, do care very much about quality, and they have great integrity, um, and they will not necessarily invest resources, their time, their energy, their heart, their soul in artists whose work they truly believe in. But um, within this construct of there being a for-profit sector and a not-for-profit sector, the profit motive is this is always lurking in the backdrop when people talk about um, the, the gallery scene. Whereas museums, uh, because they don't sell art, are perceived as being more objective in determining and in describing what in art is most meaningful or valuable in an aesthetic sense or in a cultural or a social sense. So, these two sectors, the for-profit sector and the not-for-profit sector, the galleries and the museums, they, they uh, exist discreetly, but they have a very important interaction with each other. And in the art world, having a museum exhibition is uh, very often seen as a, um, a means of elevating the stature, and it, it certainly does elevate the stature, and therefore the monetary value of an artist's work. So it not only a museum exhibition not only brings or a museum buying an important work by an artist not only brings that work to a larger audience, but it also validates that work by what's viewed as being an objective authority. Uh, and also museum exhibitions often bring media coverage by art critics, and so they really elevate an artist's stature an artist's importance in, in their local community, in the national, on the national stage, and increasingly on the global stage. And so uh, museums play a very important role in what we call the art business. Um, uh, and, and the connections are, are multiple, um, but one very important connection uh, exists, the connection between the for-profit sector and the not-for-profit sector exists in the role of the art collector, because art collectors buy art, and very often art collectors 
are important people who sit on boards of trustees or boards of directors of museums. Um, so in my work for uh, Peter and Eileen Norton, which, which you, um, you know, picked up on, um, uh, I was part of and, and I observed at, uh, from the front row um, the acquisition of a lot of contemporary art, uh, as well as being um, aware of some of the activities that the Nortons were involved with uh, as board members. And, and there are guidelines within the museum um, uh, uh, ethics. There are, there are guidelines for ethical behavior and how to avoid conflict of interest. And it's, you know, it is a somewhat regulated industry, but the connections are undeniable. And, and in my assessment, that, that's how they exist. Thank you. That that uh, it, it is simple. You have simplified it, but but uh, but I think that that that's clear. And the point uh, again for listeners who have maybe just tuned in, uh, our discussion today is not to talk about the ethics of the art business, and uh, we're not um, casting aspersions on any museum or individuals. Uh, AAM and ICOM have very clear guidelines for ethical behavior, but the point that is important to make as we continue on in this discussion and understand uh, how museums uh, were involved in the um, uh, uh, 1960s and 70s with the uh, rise of, uh, of African-American artists and, uh, and uh, other, other impacts is that museums validate uh, a, a situation. They validate an artist. They validate a piece of art. I mean, they validate uh, a historic object. You know, as, as a, a rusty old musket that you, that's lying around in an attic is a rusty old musket. Rusty old musket is is uh, brought in and displayed at the museum, and people take a little more notice. There's a there's an emphasis of validation, uh, and that's just the way it is. So uh, I think that that provides us some really good context uh, to talk uh, uh, a little bit more, Susan, about your your research in looking at some of the exhibitions that uh, that were extremely controversial and were there for all the good reasons and but maybe have uh, some greater greater lessons to share with us about uh, particularly um, race relations in yeah. uh, in our well, country can, right now. Just also, you know, piggyback on that question. I think that what's germane for our conversation today, and what was certainly important for me as a motivation for writing this book, is that up until the 1960s, there were very few exhibitions of work by um, particular artists of color in general, and particularly African American artists. Um, there, you really could count on one hand the number of exhibitions that were devoted to work by African American artists, and um, in my research, I meticul- meticulously uh, scoured archives in order to track the uh, records of, of acquisitions, of the, the acquiring of work um, by artists of color by the major museums in New York City, and that was my focus. And I think that what happened during the 1960s, uh, late 60s and early 70s, was you know, demand by artists of color to have their work um, included in these cultural institutions for a very important reason. In our culture, art is considered one of the highest forms of human expression. Um, Art is one thing that, in fact, 
affirms our humanity. And I remember when I was growing up in the 1960s, the New York, uh, the National Endowment for the Arts had just been created, and there was a TV commercial, um, a picture of a, a man sitting in a furnished living room, and it was an animation, and, and slowly all of the furnishings disappeared, the rug disappeared, the chair disappeared, the furniture disappeared, his clothes disappeared, and then he, he was shown hunching in, in the branches of a tree, and the tagline was, without art, man would be up a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I don't know if you remember that, but I think that, you know, the, the main point is that if art is, the, is considered the highest form of human expression in our culture, um, whether you agree with that or not is immaterial. It, it is a, it is a, a generally accepted uh, notion that the exclusion of African-American artists from museums represents a basic denial of humanity. And I I don't necessarily want to get into this now, and I'm certainly not an expert in it, but I think that what we're seeing now with the Black Lives Matter movement is a resurgence in a demand to have the humanity of all citizens of this country and all people on this world recognized and affirmed. And that is one thing that museums do. They affirm the essential humanity of the artist. And it's that fundamental role of the museum, art market aside, you know, the art market's important, but the fundamental role of the museum in affirming our, our, our being is what, is what gives this situation such high stakes. Well, well said. And with that, we're going to take our first break, but uh, we will be right back with more on this very important topic. See, now you know why I said that this was the one book you had to read. Uh, (laughs) So we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Music. 
You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm talking with Sarah Cahan today, who is the author. Uh, she's author of many books, but the one we're talking about today is called Mounting Frustration, the Art Museum in the Age of Black Power. And right before we went on break, the important, uh, one of the many important points uh, that, that were, were stated and will come back uh, into this segment is that art really affirms our humanity. And any time we deny uh, any group or any individual from being part of art, we are denying their humanity. And in fact, that is pretty much what was happening uh, before the 1960s in denying uh, uh, artists of color their due in museums. And so Susan's research be, uh, sort of begins there. What's you know the 1960s and 70s is a, is an era era of civil rights, of post civil rights, of uh, the black uh, movement in in uh, certainly in major cities. And then so Susan, that's sort of the context maybe to talk about the factors that led to the creation of the Studio Museum in Harlem. Yeah, well, the Studio Museum is a fascinating institution, and today it is certainly the leading uh, museum of African art, African-American art, and art of the African diaspora um, in the United States, if it's not the world. And its, its origins are amazing because uh, it was founded in 1968, but many people don't realize that it began, the planning of it and the, the origins of it really began much earlier during the civil rights movement. Um, I want to mention that uh, in 1964, uh, Kenneth Clark, who, whose name may be familiar to many because uh, his research and uh, he and his wife's research was very important in the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education uh, Supreme Court decision to desegregate schools. Um, Kenneth Clark had been asked, commissioned by the federal government, to come up with a plan for um, uh, community development programs in Harlem. And one of the programs that he came up with was called HARU. Uh, it was a program for Harlem youth to involve them in all kinds of things like job training, community organizing, but also in, in art. And in 1965, art classes, actually 64, uh, art classes began uh, to be offered for um, youth living in Harlem. There was a very important instructor in that program named Betty Blayton, a painter and an educator, who, uh, in addition to teaching her students painting, began to bring them down to the Museum of Modern Art on East, on 53rd Street to look at the collections at MoMA. And um, at first, when her students arrived uh, on their own, they would be literally turned away by the security guards who were unaccustomed to seeing African-American teenagers uh, visiting MoMA. Um, but, but 
Betty uh, had some, some friends who worked at the museum, and she was able to arrange to have her students get free passes to go visit MoMA. And gradually, the staff began to take notice that these students were there and, and decided to work with the HARU program to arrange a series of artist talks where students could, could meet with emerging artists who are now, many, many of whom are now household names, like, for example, Jim Dine is one of uh, the artists who met with these students. And there was a, um, a, a, a group at, at MoMA called the Junior Council, which was sort of like um, offspring of some of the trustees, sort of wealthy and, and community-minded individuals, who, who began to think that maybe it would be a good idea to not only in, continue to have the students come to the Museum of Modern Art, but also to think about starting a museum in Harlem. So the Studio Museum was actually conceived in 1965 by a multiracial group of uh, philanthropists, community organizers, and artists. Um, the museum opened uh, officially uh, in 1968, and um, while its, its planning was um, originally, in its planning, it was conceived as being a museum to show a multiracial and multi-ethnic group of artists, uh, what ensued in, in, after the opening um, led it to actually become a museum exclusively uh, devoted to African-American art. Um, and would you like me to tell that story, Carol? Yes, that I do. About? Yes, I okay. do. <laughs> okay. Um, well, from its early planning stages, some members of the art community in Harlem feared that the museum might become a means of simply pacifying black artists and preventing them from pressuring major institutions like MoMA to show their work, to actually integrate their exhibitions and collections. Um, others disparaged the involvement of, of whites in the founding of the Studio Museum as a revival of what's been called white slumming, uh, the kind of... Um, uh, kind of voyeurism and visitation by whites to Harlem in the 1920s uh, that, and, and that um, left a, a distaste uh, amongst some uh, leaders in the, the Harlem cultural and art community. Um, by the time the museum opened in 1968, the political climate in the country, of course, had changed significantly from 1964-1965, and black power had become the dominant unifying theme in the movement toward racial equality. Um, some artists saw any involvement of whites in Harlem as an attack on black culture itself. And the uh, founding and establishment of the Studio Museum coincided with a couple of other events going on in Harlem. One was the opening of a branch of Shearson Hamill, um, which was viewed as an encroachment by the banking industry, a predatory encroachment by the banking industry into Harlem, and also actually on the very day that the Studio Museum opened in September 1968, there was a hearing about the possible closing of the 135th Street branch of the New York Public Library, the Arthur Schomburg branch, which as everyone who is familiar with it knows, was, it is the central repository for materials about black culture in New York City, which caused alarm and anger uh, among many Harlem residents and many artists. So uh, the night of the, of the opening was very controversial. There were protests 
against the museum. Uh, there was an outcry that the museum should close, that it was simply a manifestation of white imperialism. And within a few months, um, the uh, director had stepped down, and by the following year, a new director was appointed, someone who had been very involved, who was very involved in the black arts movement, a poet named Ed Spriggs. Uh, he came to the helm at the Studio Museum, and the museum reasserted its mission, a new mission that was focused exclusively on African-American art. So, so this is the basic story of the founding of the Studio Museum. It's also, I think, reflective of the larger story, the larger trajectory of the civil rights and black power movements in the United States, which, which really took a major turn from between the early 60s and, and the late 60s. And, you know, in thinking about this history, it's really quite amazing because I think that if, um, if the timing had not been exactly what it was, uh, the Studio Museum might never have been founded. Um, and thank goodness it was because it is, it's a, it's, um, it's a beacon. Uh, it's a leader for all of us. Um, it's one of the most important museums uh, in the country, and as I say, if not the world. And, and if you'd like, we can talk a little bit more about the Studio Museum later on. But I do feel that it's, uh, it's a fascinating story, and I, I know that it's a story that even some of the people who have been involved with the Studio Museum for many years really didn't know until I went back and unearthed the uh, archival material and conducted the interviews in, in order to tell this amazing story. Yeah. Thank yes, uh, and thank you. And again, we're you know obviously this is a one-hour interview, um, and we don't have time to go into all of it. But I was so fascinated with the people, uh, the contemporaries of, of the uh, who were there during the founding of the uh, museum, and their their stories. And it was, uh, and there was a great deal of hurt. Uh, and frustration and anger, and to me, it just brought back in a clearer way of the uh, the challenges that uh, the civil rights movement faced in the late '60s and '70s, and it really harkened back to a lot of uncomfortable uh, but necessary and important conversations. Just because they're uncomfortable doesn't mean that we shouldn't be having them uh, 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 today. And so I. I Again, uh, the uh, the story is very rich because you were able to speak to so many uh, people uh, about that. And one of the things that then I found so fascinating um, was you know, th- that uh, some of the people that you talked about uh, uh, talked to and interviewed saw the creation of the studio museum, you know, sort of as, as one bookend, and then the second shoe that dropped was, <laughs> <laughs> with a clunk, uh, was, was, uh, was the uh, Harlem on My Mind. Uh, exhibition. And so why don't you in that segment sort of just, what was it? (laughs) Why did it happen? (laughs) Well, um, I should say, first of all, that Harlem on My Mind was a very controversial exhibition that was held at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It opened in January 1969. And it was so controversial that many Uh, art historians and artists believe that it actually was the galvanizing force that brought together the um, uh, community of artists who then very actively and vociferously advocated for museums to integrate in subsequent years. 
become the most important group of activists at that time um, advocating integration being the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, uh, which was led by the very important artist, Benny Andrews, and uh, another important artist and activist, Cliff Joseph, uh, but it also involved many other artists as well. So Harlem on My Mind was an exhibition um, conceived uh, by a curator named Alan Scherner and supported by the then museum director at the Met, uh, Thomas P.S. Hoving. Um, both men were liberal-minded and felt that they would like to play a constructive role in having the Metropolitan Museum participate in civil rights initiatives. And, uh, and Alan Turner, so Alan Turner proposed an exhibition that would tell the history of Harlem, the Harlem neighborhood, uh, within the Met's galleries. The problem was that Alan Turner was a curator, is a curator, uh, who is very interested in multimedia display, um, the presentation of archival material, uh, use of photography. He was interested in early um, exhibitions incorporating video. And, uh, and Scherner's vision of the exhibition was, was more of a social history of Harlem. And the key point of controversy with that exhibition, the key point of contention was that it did not include any work by African-American artists. It was not an art exhibition. Now, there were many accomplished artists who were living in Harlem and who had lived in Harlem. Um, Romare Bearden, probably being the most well-known uh, who had already had achieved a record of incredible accomplishment. He was a mature artist. He was uh, in his late 50s at the time that the Harlem on My Mind exhibition was being organized. And because the museum, the Metropolitan Museum, had a very specific idea of what it wanted to do with this exhibition, it did not allow for the incorporation of artists. And, you know, before we took the break, I mentioned this very important function of museums, uh, one very important function of museums as affirming the basic you know, humanity, uh, our, our basic humanity, and the exclusion of African-American artists from that world is an implicit denial uh, of, of, of humanity. Um, and so artists really took issue with the way this exhibition was being conceived and organized. Uh, now, granted, um, the curator had an advisory board of individuals from Harlem who, in fact, many of whom advocated that artists be included in the show or that there be a complementary exhibition of, of fine art to happen concurrent with the Harlem on My Mind show. But this never came to pass. And so the artists negotiated with the officials of the museum and then eventually protested against the exhibition. Uh, it is one of the most controversial exhibitions ever to have ever occurred in, in the history of museums in the United States. And it has come to stand for many different things, but I think importantly it has come to stand for being a lightning rod for activists and being a galvanizing force in bringing activists together who then went on to lobby other museums 
to integrate and to put pressure on museums to incorporate African-American art into their programs. Uh, the next museum that became the focus of this artist's attention was the Whitney Museum of American Art when it was located uh, in its current lo- former location on Madison Avenue and 75th Street. But that, that's another story. But in short, that's the story of Harlem on my mind. And it's, it's unfortunately not the last time that something that was sort of well-meaning and on the surface even had those things like an advisory committee that were, you know, every museum now has and, you know, a thoughtful curator uh, um, and for all of those sort of the, the 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 contributions the ultimate statement that the met made whether it meant to or not was that african american artists were marginalized because they were not recognized or validated by the metropolitan museum of art they were and i i think that the basic problem was that the most curators and museum officials really were not aware of African-American artists' work. Um, they, they didn't really care very much about it. They didn't pay attention. There were uh, exhibitions that were being organized by places like the Harlem Cultural Council, but these things were not part of the regular research process of most curators. And, um, and so there were two separate art worlds. Uh, there were separate art worlds that were, could have been brought together at that time and weren't. Um, there were there were so many missed opportunities, and this certainly was one of them. And not being, as we know, uh, not being aware is is still no no excuse. Uh, and and that's some of the the fussing uh, and and an important uh, lesson I think uh, to be learned uh, from that. We're going to take our second break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the legacies of both the uh, uh, Studio Museum and the legacy of uh, Harlem on My Mind. So stay tuned. We will be back. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations, no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn 
or call her directly at 240-432-7712. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bosser. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I am here today with uh, Susan Kahn, uh, the uh, author of the book we're talking about today, Mounting Frustration, the Art Museum in the Age of Back- Black Power. Uh, it was published this year, 2016, uh, by Duke University Press. It is a fabulous book, uh, and I think everyone should be reading it, uh, particularly right now as we have discussions about uh, race in museums, uh, the issues of privilege that continue uh, to crop up in museums. And one of the, the things that, Susan, I found so fascinating uh, in in understanding this history and then you bring it forward to, to the legacy of today uh, are those code words and phrases that we continue to use in the museum world, thinking that uh, many of us, I think, thinking that those are really good words to use, but in fact, I think that the vocabulary continues to draw uh, lines and build walls and and Mm -hmm. words like community gallery, what does that really mm-hmm. mean? Or uh, uh, new audiences or uh, diversity of, of, uh, of interpretation because what, what those words often mean is less than or different or not part of uh, a, a Western European tradition. Uh, mm-hmm. And that and that it that continues to be exclusionary and actually does not reflect the richness of artists and expression certainly that we have in the world and in this country. Yeah, yeah, I I think that that's that's absolutely true. Um, and you know, you mentioned the legacies of this period. Um, one legacy of this period uh, is the. The creation of what we call culturally specific museums, and you know we can talk about that in a minute, but just in terms of language even even the term culturally specific is misleading because it implies that uh, museums that show work by Caucasian artists or artists of, of Europe and European descent are themselves not also culturally specific. Um, the word culturally specific is typically used to describe museums of African-American or Latino or Native American art, and we still, I think, uh, struggle with, with language to uh, describe what we mean in ways that are equitable, fair, and, and unbiased. Um, an alternate term that a colleague of mine has offered is culturally grounded, uh, you know, museums that are grounded in specific uh, cultural traditions that are identifiable and, and that are articulated explicitly by those institutions. 
That's a good phrase. Uh, well, it, it well seems like a good phrase to me right now. I'm going to uh, ponder it because as many of my colleagues have reminded me gently and uh, nicely that uh, just even terms that seem very innocuous to me, I have the privilege of thinking that they're innocuous. So I need to uh, to think about those a l- uh, those a little bit more. But let's talk then a little bit about the one as you said one of the legacies was the culturally specific or now culturally <laughs> grounded uh, institution and, uh, and those have proliferated across the country. I mean the the uh, Studio Museum in Harlem could be considered a culturally grounded institution. Um, so in your research and in talking with, with uh, colleagues who were involved in the uh, 1960s and 70s, how, uh, what is their perspective on this almost, do they see it as, a, as another ploy of separate but equal that continues to marginalize the African-American community of artists? Well, I think that um, I and many of the people who I identify with and, and who I spoke to in researching this book feel that culturally grounded museums and cultural institutions are absolutely essential because they have picked up the mantle of embracing and um, showcasing uh, work by artists who otherwise uh, simply wouldn't have a chance or would have limited chances. They provide a home for all kinds of things, not only collecting and exhibiting, but also interpreting from multiple points of view, um, work by artists that just were not included in in the major museums until fairly recently, and and certainly even now, not to a great extent. So I think that, um, you know, the newest museum that's right about to open is uh, the Museum of African American History and Culture of the Smithsonian. Um, So we've seen the existence of culturally grounded museums institutionalized in this country in a very real way. And I think that it is, uh, things could have gone a different way in the 1970s, um, but this is the way they went. And while this may not be the solution forever, uh, it is at least a way in which a wide range of artists can feel that there are people who are paying attention and, and providing uh, opportunities. Um, one of the really interesting things to me about the Studio Museum right now is its mission. Um, its mission is actually all embracing. Uh, its mission is not only to show artists of the of, Afri- of the African diaspora, but also to show the work of artists who have been influenced um, by the art of Africa. And if one thinks of the United States and its culture. Um, in, in many realms, but particularly in music, uh, and, and that's just probably the most obvious example. Um, I don't think that there is anyone uh, who is um, uh, an American artist, a U.S.-based artist, who has not been influenced by African-American culture. So I think that the mission, the current mission of the Studio Museum is really a quite um, important Uh, articulation of a way in which we can bridge um, what's been referred to as the margins in the mainstream and a way that we can think about museums as being institutions that are for everyone, that that are truly universal and that that truly encompass the universal mission that the so-called mainstream museums uh, claim to aspire to. 
One of the things uh, that you mentioned in the book, or at least this is how I I took it, so please, this is your opportunity to correct my uh, my assumptions. As you you mentioned, uh, seemed to mention to me that another one of the legacies, and again, this was of the quote mainstream museums, uh, was the was reaching out to the African-American community through education. And, um, and I'm, and I, and in reading that, you know, reading, uh, your, your thoughts about say the American Alliance of Museums, uh, push, uh, for, uh, excellence and equity that was, is in its, you know, third revision. It's, it's, you know, certainly one of the cornerstones of my, uh, museum education. And I know it's still, you know, a cornerstone in many museum education, uh, uh, master's programs, but you know, after reading your book, I got a real different feel for, uh, and, <laughs> well, and, I'm glad and, to know, hear and, that, and, and, because <laughs> I was raised on it too. Um, the Excellence and Equity Report was published by the American Association, now called the American Alliance of, of or the Alliance of American Museums. Um, actually, it's one or the other. I don't remember which, but it was called the American Association of Museums in 1992 when uh, Excellence and Equity, a very important uh, report, was published. I was at that time the curator of education at the New Museum of Contemporary Art. The subtitle of Excellence and Equity is Education and the Public Dimension of Museums. Um, And that report is based on three ideas, Um, a commitment to education as central to museums' public service missions, a commitment to making museums more inclusive, and the importance of leadership from both inside and outside museums as essential to enabling museums to fulfill their missions. Now, those all sound like very um, admirable goals. Um, But what my research led me to conclude is that during the 1970s, there was an emergence, and this is documented in this fascinating book called The Art Museum as Educator that was published in 1978. Uh, During the 1970s, museums all across the United States started creating education programs in, in just a, there was this explosion of museum education programs. And most of these programs at that time were designed to serve what were called underserved constituencies. Um, prior to that, they had been uh, odiously called um, uh, culturally deprived constituencies, implying that particular groups of people did not have cultures worthy of recognition, um, but by the 70s, they were being called underserved constituencies. And, and these, um, you know, literally hundreds of education programs were devised in a way that I believe um, and I document um, took some of the pressure off the museums to include such underserved constituencies in their exhibitions and in their collecting practices. So rather than um, lead to a, the, 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 the impetus toward some kind of equity, rather than lead toward uh, a great, much greater diversity in the uh, acquisition of art, these uh, museums, many museums started to frame uh, communities of color as being deserving merely of, of, of the consumer role. 
uh, not necessarily the role of producer. When museums did dedicate spaces within their physical plants for work by artists of color, uh, and, and this is documented, this is not something I'm just hypothesizing, um, very often these spaces were in the museum's restaurant or they were in a hallway um, right. or they were in off the lobby or they were considered experimental or, or spaces yes. for emerging artists. And, and another strategy that museums de- devised to address the work of artists of color is that they would literally create galleries in the restaurants and kitchen areas of their museums. Um, this was true in the Junior Museum restaurant at the Metropolitan Museum. It was true in the Penthouse restaurant at the Museum of Modern Art. Um, Benny Andrews, the, the artist who was involved in the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, has actually written about this. Um, hallways were uh, another you know, space that was uh, dedicated to work by, by African-American artists in particular and, and artists of color in general. And so what this points to is the continued marginalization of these artists, uh, artists who were perceived as constantly emerging uh, but never uh, having fully arrived. Uh, the lobby gallery phenomenon is an expression of this, where, uh, where the artist would not be put in the main galleries but would be put in, you know, in a side gallery off the lobby. So this, this type of thing uh, represents one of the outcomes. You know, Susan, thank you. Uh, um, thank you so much. I'm, I'm almost speechless. Uh, I was when I, when I read your book and, and then today. It just is bringing back so many um, of my own experiences and my own uh, lack of, of, uh, of understanding. So thank you so very much for being on the show today. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Carol. I, I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. And we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. We'll be right back. 